Startup is proud to be part of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. With PodPower, our sponsors are making it possible for us to amplify the voices of Albertans and Alberta podcasters. This episode, Edmonton Community Foundation is helping us give a PodPower shout out to Book Women. Book Women is a podcast about editing, publishing, and writing Indigenous stories. Three Métis librarians representing nations from across the homeland aim to inspire Indigenous peoples to share their stories in whatever form that they enjoy. Guests include Indigenous storytellers from diverse mediums like podcasting, burlesque, books, comics, social media, films, music, and everything in between. You can listen and find out more at bookwomenpodcast.ca. This episode of the Color Gap podcast was also brought to you by Alberta Association of Optometrists, proudly celebrating a century of caring for Albertans. It happens. Parents can easily miss their child's eye problems. Issues can occur in only one eye, making it difficult to notice. The earlier an eye health or vision problem is identified, the more likely it can be corrected. The IC iLearn program provides an eye exam and free glasses if needed for kindergarten age children. 25% of kids begin first grade with an undiagnosed eye problem. To book your child's eye exam, please visit optometrist.ab.ca. The Alberta Association of Optometrists represents almost 800 doctors of optometry in over 80 communities across the province. Members are highly trained, regulated health professionals who provide primary eye health and vision care to Albertans. Learn more at optometrists.ab.ca. So many of our defining moments in life come from the experiences we have in the workplace, both good and bad. Many of us place a significant amount of energy, time, and a deep connection of our sense of self-worth to our work. As women of color, our sense of community, belonging, and the ability to truly thrive in the workplace is limited immensely by the representation we see, by how many of us are in leadership, how our differences are managed, and how welcome we are actually made to feel. And I suspect if I asked the women of color in my circles of influence, most, if not all, would be able to quickly point to numerous defining moments within the workplace full of dangerously bad leadership, microaggressions, and carrying the emotional tax of being seen but not heard. So why is it that it's taken this long for us to finally have language around the toxicity we've experienced? Why is it that at 41 years old, I finally have realized the impact of the dangerously inept and manipulative leadership I've experienced more than once in my career. Finally now realizing the impact of the intentional and unintentional missteps of the organizations I have been a part of. I think part of the awakening that 2020 brought to the world, the global pandemic that opened up conversations on mental health in a new way, the uprise of the social justice movement where marginalized communities finally got the opportunity to be heard in ways that were never afforded previously. And suddenly we have this new language for the experiences we've all been forced to swallow and take for so long. And it's calling it what it is, workplace trauma. Now you may need to settle for a minute and let that sit as it certainly took me a minute to grasp the idea of calling those experiences trauma. But that's exactly what they are. And many organizations aren't ready to admit they do harm, nor are they equipped with the right knowledge and tools to help people, especially women of color, 
navigate their environments from a safe place. The illusion that most corporations are in it for the good of the people is often shattered very quickly, especially if you're a woman of color and see little that makes you feel safe. Let me put it into factual terms for you. In a piece called The Hidden Cost of Workplace Trauma by David Lee, he goes on to say that trauma can come from a single catastrophic event such as violence in the workplace or from a series of less dramatic stressors, which through their cumulative effect, create debilitating psychological and physical changes. Cumulative emotional trauma is created by the compound, combined effects of stressors such as demeaning work conditions, worker job mismatch, prejudice, unclear job expectations, impossible workloads, abusive treatment by peers or superiors, emotionally draining interactions with difficult people, and job insecurity. Although not as cataclysmic as major violent episodes in the workplace or things like natural disasters, these factors chisel away at a worker's sense of security, value, and well-being. When I've spoken to white allies in the past about the experiences of being a woman of color in corporate environments, I explain it as some sort of hyper-awareness equivalent to that of a woman walking alone at night in a park constantly aware of our surroundings, our differences, and always on guard, ready to respond to the subtle and not so subtle attacks on the mere presence of us. We can't turn it off unless we're in the company of other racialized women. And our sense of safety comes from being in spaces and places where the color of our skin and our differences aren't anomalies, where we can take off our armor, breathe a sigh of relief, and trust that our differences won't be weaponized against us. That feeling is most amplified in the workplace, where we are often amongst blissfully ignorant peers and leaders who haven't had to live their lives being the other, and where toxicity and workplace trauma run rampant. And we've all seen and heard the headlines. Google to pay $3.8 million over alleged discrimination against women and Asians in 2021. Pinterest employees protesting against gender and racial discrimination at the company in a virtual walkout in 2020. And it's not just a U.S. problem, nor is it just a tech problem. In 2019, a headline from the Toronto Star read, passed over, bullied, mistaken for janitorial staff, Black women sue Ontario Public Service, alleging systemic racism. And there are many, many more a sort of uprising of what Bloomberg Law calls the new age of employee activism. The level of accountability levied against corporations is stronger than ever now. Organizations are fearful of the consequences of cancel culture, not wanting to be seen as performative or in it for profit over people. Yet at a micro level, the day-to-day experiences of so many women of color isn't changing. How many of us continue to have the experience of consistently getting our names butchered, of being on guard, walking on eggshells, playing a constant game of assimilation so as to not stand out for the wrong reasons, fitting yourself into a mold that wasn't created or defined by you, dealing with expectations that are designed almost to discredit your existence, and knowing that as women of color, as racialized women, our very existence is political and doing anything outside of the norm of the structures within our corporations that are designed to uphold white supremacy, 
to challenge, to question, to oust anything that dares to be outside of that norm means that we are most at risk. As George A on his experiences as a person of color working for design firm IDEO says, so many traits of white supremacy culture have been rebranded as professionalism. Think about it. Perfectionism, a perpetual sense of urgency, paternalism, power hoarding, fear of open conflict, individualism. Those are all proudly on display in so many of our organizations. And we all uphold legacies of people who fought before us to have the very existence of us recognized for our ability to vote, to hold gainful employment, to have the same rights and freedoms as our white counterparts. And to think that we can separate that history when we enter workplaces that were never designed for us to thrive means we aren't being honest with ourselves about the battles we face or the sheer challenges that lay in front of us. Now, I've been through the gamut of scenarios myself that make it incredibly difficult to transfer the ownership of my sense of imposter syndrome from myself over to the organizations that have been failing for years to create environments where women that look like me can actually thrive. I've been called entitled for advocating for myself, told I made too much money upon first meeting a new boss in an entry-level role, been called numerous versions of my name completely removed from any semblance of my own by those that should know better been mistaken for the only other racialized woman on my larger HR team by a senior executive, and much, much more. While these don't seem like a big deal, they chip away each and every time at that small semblance of belonging, of feeling fully seen and acknowledged, of being able to fully contribute because I'm constantly on guard, trying not to have my very existence discredited. And my experiences, sadly, literally pale in comparison to the stories and the journeys I have witnessed of my colleagues, friends, and those women of color within my network. Sadly, I'm one of the lucky ones. And let me confirm something for you. It's not just in our heads. A study completed in 2019 by Catalyst in association with Ascend Canada reported people of color tried to downplay their aspects of their identity to shield themselves from bias. Some say they would avoid wearing cultural clothing, make an extra effort to temper their language or try to appear older to counter the emotional tax. And Canadian people of color carry an extra weight at work that's so significant that it impacts their health and often causes them to contemplate quitting. Further, on top of this emotional tax, so many of us face hiring biases, a wage gap, lower levels of employment, and less representation in leadership and executive positions. It's no wonder we feel like we're at war all the time. And for so many years, I've sucked it up because that's what a good Pakistani girl would do. Not rock the boat, stay in my lane, be grateful for the opportunities because they represent access to spaces and places my immigrant parents sacrificed to get me to. And as I've progressed into more senior roles in my career, and now as I have the privilege of leading diversity and inclusion work in my own organization, I often find myself asking, why should the onus of the defense against microaggressions and traumatic workplace experiences be placed on people of color? And how can organizations do a better job of acknowledging and counteracting these experiences? 
my aim and my work is to seek out root causes and address systemic issues that perpetuate these experiences. But I'm just getting started and I'm only one person with a long road ahead that only really touches my own circles of influence and my workplace, much like that of many other diversity and inclusion professionals. So what can you do if you're experiencing workplace trauma, navigating microaggressions and simply existing as a woman of color in a corporate environment? I have some thoughts that will hopefully help you start the process of healing and moving closer to finding yourself in an environment where you can actually thrive. And I'm by no means an expert outside of my own lived experience. And I start the conversations that I can encourage you to seek out additional resources, to reflect on your own needs, to see what works and doesn't work for your own individual situations. But I think it's really important that recognizing that so much of the work is internal, because let me tell you, even if you end up in an environment that allows you to be more of your authentic self, your past trauma will creep up. I still have fears of being fired on a regular basis based on horrendously inhumane practices of past employers firing colleagues and reorganizing on a whim. And despite a list of accomplishments and success, I cringe at the thought of any performance reviews, knowing that I've had to be the most exceptional human that literally jumps through hoops of fire to make an impression beyond the standard meets expectations. And it's taken me 41 years to get to a place where I listen to my gut and try my very best to bring my authentic self to work every day. And things like the job search process, something that has come from truly a deep sense of privilege afforded to me by, let's be honest, mastering the art of assimilation. And I've spoken before on this platform about seeking mental health support to help you through the process to further validate the existence of your own experiences, and more importantly, to give you tools to navigate them from a healthy and proactive place. Finding mental health support with a professional who understands your lived experience is an absolute non-negotiable in my opinion. And often you can explore things like paramedical benefits that your employer offers to choose your own practitioner. If you have the option to explore this and it's accessible to you, It is the number one thing you can do to move forward in as healthy a way as possible. If you can't, seek communities of support within or outside your organization, employee resource groups, external mentorship programs, even small things like curating your social media feeds to follow and explore more women that look like you to access what is possible where you are allowed to thrive. These are all subtle and powerful influences that help you see more than your current circumstances. Secondly, I think it's so important to call it what it is. I think language has an incredible way of helping us validate our experiences and creating space for us to reflect in meaningful ways. It is workplace trauma. They are microaggressions. You have had to play the game for far too long and it's not okay. Best-selling author Minda Hartz in her newly released book, Right Within, notes that the first step to healing from racial trauma in the workplace is to acknowledge that harm has been caused. She goes on to say, for so long, many of our white colleagues have tried to tell us what racism is and isn't. So you taking ownership of your own experiences, articulating what it is, how it made you feel, 
all of these things give power to the opportunity to heal on your terms. Third, know who to seek help from internally and how. I will tell you from working in HR for the last 10 years, most HR practitioners do not have the tools to work from a trauma-informed place, nor do they often have enough influence to meaningfully advocate for you. Many HR professionals are incredibly empathetic and kind humans, and they get into the profession to do meaningful work. Yet they work within the confines of company policy, legalities, and are often at the mercy of the decision-making power of senior leadership. They are not your enemy, but they are also not in a position to do much for you unless you can come to the table with facts and evidence. Document everything, even the most minute things that you don't think make a difference, in the moment or immediately after, and making sure you have receipts where possible. It's truly the only way for the balance of probabilities to lean in your favor and for change to happen. Fourth, if you're trying to be discerning about the next place that you land, pay attention to the details when you're in the recruitment process. How inclusive is the language used in their job descriptions? What kind of feedback or encouragement are you getting through the recruitment process? And how well does the organization answer tough questions? Questions such as, what is the company doing to ensure a sense of belonging in the onboarding process? How does the organization support the succession and advancement of women of color? What are you actively doing as a leader to become more effective and engaging? If they can't answer these questions or they do so from a place that feels inauthentic and scripted, they likely aren't an organization you will want to align yourself with. You deserve better. Lastly, I know that it takes courage to walk away from places that no longer serve you or where your mental health is suffering to the point of burnout, anxiety, or depression. But sometimes you need to cut your losses and get out, even without a backup plan. And honestly, it takes courage that some of us don't have the privilege of accessing. So if you're in it with no concrete way out, I hope the above tools will help you move through where you are to get to a better place. And I'll leave you with this quote by Paola Miglietta that resonated deeply with me as I was thinking through this episode. My dear, never forget that the sun rises every morning, no matter how strong the storm was the day before. If you haven't taken a moment, I would love for you to be part of the conversation with me for the long term. Hit subscribe on your favorite podcast player and tune in every two weeks for new episodes and conversations. If you're so inclined, I would love for you to leave a review or for you to connect with me to tell me how I can be of further service to you. My contact details are always left in the description box of each episode, and I am eternally grateful for each and every one of you coming along on the journey with me, for trusting me and giving me all of the space to be my authentic self. I can't wait for what comes next.